When is a DDoS attack not a DDoS attack? And restricting the flow of patient information. These stories and more coming up on the ISMG Security Report. Hello, I'm Eric Chabro. We start off today's report with the following question. When is a DDoS attack not a DDoS attack? We asked because of what happened last week in Australia. The Bureau of Statistics collects census data, and the agency asked Australians to go online August 9th to fill out a census form. The online system was overwhelmed with traffic, forcing officials to take it offline for two days, citing a distributed denial-of-service attack. But was it? My Sydney, Australia-based colleague and ISMG Managing Editor for Security and Technology, Jeremy Kirk, picks up the story. They wanted everybody to kind of fill it out on the evening of August 9th, so they got a complete snapshot of the nation's peoples. The Australian Bureau of Statistics had basically encouraged millions of people to go to this website at the same time, which experts that I've spoken to say could be a complete disaster if it's not configured correctly. We kind of take it for granted these days that high traffic websites function perfectly, but there's a lot of engineering involved in being able to accommodate that high amount of traffic. So what went wrong? The government stuck by its story that the website was under distributed denial service attacks. However, I've spoken to experts who say that actually it appears that the government is mistaken. It wasn't denial service attacks per se, but it was actually a configuration error involving domain name servers. Now, a lot of users in Australia use DNS services that are outside the country. The Australian Bureau of Statistics didn't want people from outside Australia accessing the census website. So what they did is that they barred anybody coming with a DNS resolver from outside the country from using the census site. But they inadvertently blocked a lot of Australians from using it. So when the government said that it was under distributed denial of service attacks, A lot of security experts have said, no, actually, that's just DNS traffic from a server that's outside Australia. It looked like legitimately that they were under denial of service attack, but it was kind of of their own making. Has the government admitted to this yet? And we don't know much else aside from the fact that there were denial of service attacks. And now there's a government investigation, of course, because this was a very large and very expensive government project. And Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull has said heads are going to roll over it. There also are questions over... IBM. IBM was the main contractor. It received a $9.6 million contract to conduct an electronic census. And there were other contractors involved in setting up the site and also services related to it. Prime Minister Malcolm Trimble says IBM will have a very serious case to answer. The denial of service attacks were completely predictable, should have been repelled readily. They weren't because of failures in the system that have been put in place for ABS by IBM, and and as I said, there are issues for both IBM and ABS about that. Now, that's that's a fact. This cyber incident isn't the only commotion occurring with the Australian Bureau of Statistics. Privacy advocates have voiced concerns. What's that all about? That's right. Well, preceding the alleged distributed denial of service attacks, there was a big controversy over how the Australian Bureau of Statistics had changed a key way that they store data. Normally, the ABS destroys people's names and addresses after 18 months. And Australia is a bit of an outlier in that respect of destroying names and addresses at all. Like the U.S. and Canada and New Zealand all retain names and addresses for perpetuity. But the ABS decided to extend the period that it retained that information up to four years. And this is so they could do more data analysis and create a richer data set from the census. Privacy activists were absolutely livid about it. Although there was a public inquiry into it last year, they can 
contend that the period wasn't long enough and people weren't really properly informed. This kind of set the backdrop right before the attack. It's probably conceivable that the government would believe, because the debate over the privacy aspect of the census was so fierce, that possibly the census form could come under attack by hacktivists. But it looks like that's probably not the case. Thanks, Jeremy. You're listening to the ISMG Security Report on ISMG Radio. ISMG, your number one source for information security news. Privacy rules under HIPAA, the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, allow hospitals, physicians, and other healthcare providers to disclose patient information to each other for purposes tied to healthcare treatment, payment, and business operations. But some healthcare providers require patients to give explicit consent before allowing the exchange of their health data. Is this more stringent requirement to get patient permission having an impact on the exchange of patient information the HIPAA seemingly allows? To answer that question and others, I'm joined by Healthcare Info Security Executive Editor, Marianne Kolbasak-McGee. Hi, Marianne. Hi, Eric. First off, why are some healthcare providers implementing more stringent requirements? Often for privacy reasons, some organizations want to make sure patients feel comfortable with certain sensitive information being shared with other providers. There are some allegations that some of them kind of restrict the information they get shared for competitive reasons. But the whole goal of the federal government is to get more of this information shared. And HIPAA allows certain information to be shared without consent. What impact are these granular patient consent policies some healthcare organizations have implemented having on the exchange of patient medical records? Well, researcher Julia Adler-Milstein of the University of Michigan is a co-author of a report which looked at 11 different organizations who have exchanged sorts of agreements with each other. And what they found was that those organizations that had more granular consent policies from patients generally shared less information, which would not be surprising. If I say, well, I'm going to require this more granular consent, that means that all the other players in the network have to gain that patient consent on their end. Right, So this is not a policy decision that is decided on and acted upon by a single organization. It has these ripple effects throughout the network. Doesn't patient consent run counter to the fundamental goal of electronic health information exchange? Yes and no. Obviously, it's important that patients know which information might be shared with another entity. And HIPAA does allow patient's information to be shared for treatment, payment, and business operations. But when it comes to sensitive information such as mental health, substance abuse, and other sensitive health issues, patients really would like to have more discretion in many cases about what gets shared. And there's state laws and federal laws that address those specific issues. And that's why some organizations are just overly cautious for some purposes when it comes to certain data being shared. Without sharing this information, it seems that patient care may suffer. That's true. When information is not shared with another healthcare provider about a patient, if that second healthcare provider is then treating this patient, they may not realize some of the medical issues that this patient has. They don't get the full picture of the history of the patient or even perhaps something that the patient being treated for, you know, by another doctor. It's a safety and a quality of care issue when data is not exchanged often. Thanks, Marianne. Thanks, Eric. Finally, the latest victims of the hack on Democratic Party computers 
are Democratic members of Congress, including House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi. The hacker known as Guccifer II, believed to have ties to the Russian government, exposed cell phone numbers and email addresses of the lawmakers late last week. Over the weekend, in a message sent to her colleagues, Pelosi wrote, On a personal note, I was in the air flying from Florida to California when the news broke. Upon landing, I had received scores of mostly obscene and sick calls, voicemails, and text messages. Pelosi urged her colleagues to keep their phones and incoming text messages away from their family members and children. That's the ISMG Security Report. Our theme is by Ithaca Audio. I'm Eric Chabro. Catch you next time.